Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast on The Social Network, the new David Fincher movie. Um, I'm here in the studio talking to Mr. Dan Coyce. Hi, Dan. Hi, Dana. Who is in D.C., Slate Studio, and who writes about film for The Washington Post, The Village Voice. Where else, Dan? Uh, Slate, sometimes. Um, Yes, on occasion. And And slideshows for Slate. Yeah, and whoever else will pay me, honestly. Well, we are paying you today to talk to us about The Social Network, and I'm really curious because we haven't really pre-talked this one at all. And this is, I would say, sort of the the first really big, really hyped um, major fall release, which people are talking about or were talking about before I stepped into the screening yesterday as, you know, the Citizen Kane of our generation and all kinds of, <laughs> of, of, of big words are flying around about Social Network. So I'm really curious to hear what you thought. Um, yeah, well, it's uh, I saw it um, here in D.C. a couple of nights ago, and it was pretty rapturously received down here, and the reviews have already been pretty fantastic. So, so Dan, as I mentioned, Citizen Kane is being mentioned as a reference for this movie, which obviously is, a, is an overblown and overhyped statement going in, although it does have a certain thematic relation to the movie, like Citizen Kane. This is the story of, you know, a, a, a crazy tycoon and his progressive isolation as his empire grows, right? Um, but I'm just wondering, Citizen Kane aside, did you like, love this movie? How, do, how did you fall on the on the social network spectrum um i i really enjoyed the hell out of it while i was watching it um while still uh as i was walking out of the theater i did still think so why did we make a whole movie about this again i mean which is to say i think it is an extremely entertaining movie about facebook but i'm not 100 percent convinced that it's the story of our era right yeah, I think I'm a little more convinced than you, a little bit more convinced than you about that, but I'm not sure exactly why. So I think we should, after we do our plot summary and, and talk about smaller points in the movie, go back to that and, and, and ask about what it all adds up to. But can you take us through a quick summary of the story? Sure, I can do that. Of course, as with all spoiler specials, uh, we will be spoiling it. So, for example, at the end of this movie, uh, you join Facebook. <laughs> all right. Um, so this one is pretty difficult to to spoil, in fact, because I think most of the facts of it are are pretty known. But right. still, we will we will freely give away the movie's various climaxes, or at least the pseudo facts. So this so this movie is a uh, is about Mark Zuckerberg, or at least Aaron Sorkin's idea of Mark Zuckerberg. Um, Aaron Sorkin being the scriptwriter, right? Um, and so it begins with uh, with Mark Zuckerberg and his uh, housemate Eduardo Saverin um, at Harvard in 1993. Right, ninety three, no, no, 2003. no, it was two thousand and four. Two thousand four, God. Oh yeah, that's the whole thing. Is that right? We we think that this maybe happened over some longer scope of time because right. it's kind of an epic story. But in fact, all of the events this movie documents took place in about eighteen months or something. Right. The most horrible thing about what I just said is nineteen ninety three was when I was that age. <laughs> uh, so, anyways, it starts at Harvard um, with uh, Mark uh, Zuckerberg getting dumped by his girlfriend, who calls him an asshole because he is an asshole. So the opening scene of the movie is Jesse Eisenberg as Mark Zuckerberg in a bar being dumped by his girlfriend, who's played by Rooney Mara, who we should note is actually going to work with David Fincher again in the near future in um, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. She's going to play Lizbeth Salander. Um, and so spurned by uh, his girl, um, who dumped him just because he basically called her stupid um, and also is horrible to talk to. She ref- She says, what is it she said? She says, talking to you is like... What is her great line? Is like being on the wrong side of a tennis ball shooting machine or something like that. Um, having been dumped by his girl, uh, he heads back to his dorm and in a in a fury 
um, goes through some very elaborate coding and hacking in order to create uh, Face Mash, which is a, a sort of a prototype site, um, a hot or not type site in which uh, students at Harvard are encouraged to rate Harvard girls to declare which of two randomly selected um, Harvard students are hotter. Um, and then it follows the creation of Facebook through his initial meetings with um, some other students about a uh, a uh, site that they want to create, um, which is very reminiscent of Facebook. Um, his uh, idea to take that idea, plus some other ideas he's been having, plus MySpace and Friendster, which already exist, and create the Facebook. Um, his partnering with Eduardo Saverin, who becomes the CFO of the Facebook, and then later um, the site's explosive growth, um, and his uh, partnering with a, a former founder of Napster, um, Sean, what's his last name? Sean Parker. Sean Parker, thank you, who's played by Justin Timberlake, um, uh, a, a, who helps turn the site from something that is has been created by a kid at Harvard into the world conqueror that it would soon become. Right. It's essentially Sean Parker that encourages him to take it to take it global, right? But we should also mention in terms of the film structure that it's it's got this temporal um, uh, complexity where it's cutting back and forth among two two simultaneous lawsuits. Right. right? Two depositions. That, that, Right. It's, you're right. It's, it's just the beginning, the deposition phase for two separate lawsuits, um, one of which will be Eduardo Saverin, the CFO of the original Facebook company, who's suing Zuckerberg for having shut him out financially of the company. And uh, and the other suit is being levied by the uh, the Winklevoss twins, who we haven't <laughs> talked about yet, but who are a key element in the movie, Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss. Um, who are these identical twin jock rowers from Harvard who initially hired Zuckerberg to create this social network site that he essentially, according to them, stole the idea and turned into Facebook. Uh, Right. So uh, throughout the movie, we cut back and forth to these two depositions, which are used as framing devices and also give us the ending of the movie uh, in which... Uh, Rashida Jones, who uh, plays the thankless role of a young associate at um, at the law firm that Zuckerberg has hired to defend himself in the Saverin lawsuit, um, tells him that he's not an asshole. He's just trying so hard to be one. Um, yeah, I- Rashida Jones, I, to me, that was one of the few roles in the movie that felt like exposition central, you know, that she was just only in there to provide some kind of uh, opinion to the audience about Mark Zuckerberg's emotional state. It wasn't exactly plot exposition. It was sort of emotional exposition that was assigned to her, and it right. was a little clumsy. It's a very small part of the movie, though, and in general, I think this movie handled the exposition problem incredibly gracefully. I mean, this could potentially have been the most boring movie of all time, right? You're watching guys sit around and hack into computer networks by typing lines of code, right. and you're seeing people be deposed for a lawsuit sitting in a meeting room. I mean, this, this, this is not exactly the stuff of, of great drama, yet the movie manages to make it pretty narratively compelling. Right. And I mean, what, that the emotional climax of the movie is a guy being asked to sign a contract uh, uh, in, in, and, and it revolving around uh, a company's public shares being broadened widely, uh, or I guess not public shares, but private shares, ownership shares being widely broadened to shut him out of it. Uh, I mean, that's a huge emotional moment in the movie, and it's played very well. And you're right that almost all of the twists and turns that this movie takes are things that in a lesser director's hands would have been super, super boring. But uh, Sorkin and Fincher are both really good at taking even things like coding and making them pretty lively. Uh, and, I mean, that's a real strength that this movie has is that it takes the the – everyday nuts and bolts of which the internet are made, the contracts and the code and the late nights sitting in front of a computer, and makes them pretty lively things to look at and think about. 
How do you think they do that? How do you think that they manage to make this movie as compelling as it is? I mean, one of the reasons is that they've Aaron Sorkin has done spent a lot of time building uh, credible, if not necessarily actually true, emotional backstory for Mark Zuckerberg. So that when he's hacking um, co-eds. Uh, house profiles to get their photos for face mash he's doing it because of an actual emotional grudge that he holds and you get that and when he's building facebook and defending himself against the winkle bosses he's doing it because he's so angry about their privilege and his relative lack of privilege and so that may or may not be what drives the actual mark zuckerberg but as things as emotional notches for a character to hit they work really well and they make things that would otherwise be boring to look at Uh, they give them a little bit of extra oomph you know yeah, I think in, in general, I mean, to the extent that this movie is about more than just the creation of this one particular empire, I think it's a pretty great story about power struggles among men, you know, which is something that David Fincher has always been interested in, Fight Club being the, the ultimate example. But all of his movies seem to be, I mean, you could definitely argue that women are um, pretty supplementary characters in most of his movies. And in the case of Facebook, I'm not sure there is a woman that figured largely in the growth of this empire. But it really is, I think, to a large extent about these kind of Shakespearean clashes and power struggles among the various young men who were trying to create Facebook. Power struggles among men might be a little overly generous. I would maybe call this a movie about power struggles between men boys. That, that is that's that's a good point and also points to I think one of the more interesting things about the movie which is that I think Aaron Sorkin especially for a middle-aged guy is pretty good at writing immaturity I mean this is a movie about immaturity right and about right. this whole empire that grew from the mind of this incredibly immature man um, and yet it's a I think a pretty mature study of character of that character and of character in general. I mean no one I think has ever accused Aaron Sorkin of not understanding the mindset of someone who would hold a grudge for years against someone who wronged him imperceptibly, right? That, right. That's one of his specialties. And in that sense, it dovetails really well, I think, with, with Fincher's vision. I would say as a whole, and I want to see this movie again before I write on it, which is unusual for me. I usually don't have even time to see a movie a second time. But I want to do it with this movie because it's pretty complex and pretty layered. And I want to make sure that I got all the points of view, since it is all about clashing points of view. I would say in general that I think Sorkin has a firmer grasp on this material and what he wants to do with it than Fincher does. And here we get into some of the things that I didn't think worked so well about the movie. Most of them have to do with precisely this man conflict that we're talking about, and particularly in the area of the Winklevoss twins, okay? Mm. So this is our Winklevoss sidebar here. I think the Winklevoss twins are fantastic characters when they're comic villains in this movie, like the scene where they go to Larry Summers, then the president of Harvard's office, and, and try to entreat him to interfere on their side in this legal struggle with Mark Zuckerberg. That scene is hilarious. It's really well played. And the twins, as these kind of impotently fuming, preppy jocks who can't believe that there's something in their life that didn't go right, is is a really wonderful thread in the story. Now, when David Fincher suddenly decides that the Winklevoss twins are these kind of like almost tragic villains, then the movie becomes laughable for me. And the signpost for that is the scene where they go to the Thames to row in some kind of big crew champion. They go to the, they go to London to row on the Thames in some kind of big crew championship, which I'm sorry, crew nerds will be writing in shocked that I don't know what this thing is, but whatever they're rowing in a boat race on the Thames. And this rowing scene is scored to Grieg's Hall of the Mountain King as rearranged yes. by Trent Reznor. And it's in slow motion. It has this almost chariots of fire kind of heroic, athletic agony on their faces. And I really had no idea what that scene was doing in the movie or what it was trying to show us. And that tonality really jarred me out of the movie. I don't think it's the only moment that he tries to strike a tone that's a little bit too self-serious. But that's that's one of the big ones. That scene stuck out like a sore thumb, yes. And it's shot, unlike the entire rest of the movie, it's shot... 
uh, with an extremely shallow depth of field. And it really reminded me of those – I can't remember the name of the artist, but there's an artist who creates miniature things – photographs that look like miniature still lifes but are actually large landscapes shot with an incredibly narrow depth of field so that only a tiny bit of the picture is in focus and everything else that's a little closer to you or further away from you is is blurry um but it's a very that's a very good eye see that's something i probably won't notice until the second viewing but yeah it feels very cinematic is what i noticed about that scene not that that was the technique necessarily but it feels very technical and that fincher is trying to accomplish all these technical grandiose things and i just didn't know why right and for two characters who don't deserve it at all, who, as you say, are played much better as 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 sort of high class buffoons or foils than as tragic heroes. And I mean to say this about David Fincher: I don't think there's another director out there other than maybe Bob Zemeckis who would have handled so well the technical demands of shooting identical twins played by the same actor, Arnie Hammer. Um, and, yeah, you don't realize that when you're in the movie at all, right? Yeah, I just assumed he twins. cast twins. But in fact, it's one. But yeah, guy when you think about Benjamin guys. Button, that makes complete sense. That's exactly the kind of you know visual wizardry that he pulled off in Benjamin Button, which I think was an incredibly failed and disappointing movie, but did have some unbelievable technical wizardry. Right, but this is that scene that you mentioned, that the Trent Reznor's court scene, is the scene in this movie that most reminded me of Benjamin Button, of a of a moment in the movie striving for tragic significance but falling way short and it really it seemed almost sort of tonally incoherent to me you're right it was really button-esque that scene it was totally button-esque it didn't occur to me at the time that it was but it just occurred to me that that it was wrong and and that's not the only one i just feel like musically sometimes with a little bit too much of the throbbing club music you know underneath Mm -hmm. the hacking montage or something there were moments where fincher was just kind of manning it up a little bit too much for my taste especially given that this movie is so emotionally astute it really doesn't need a lot of punching up fight club stuff style reminders that these are, um, you know, fatal struggles to the death between male egos. That's just right there in the script and in the acting. I mean, it seemed like stuff that you would put in the trailer for this movie to get people to see it, but that you wouldn't put in the actual movie. But, you know, it does make me wonder, you know, at some point did David Fincher get worried that this movie was going to be too brainy or that it was going to flop or not connect with audiences because – it was too much inside people's heads. And so, I mean, whether it was him or someone in the at the studio saying, is there any way to just make this make the stakes seem higher without us having mm-hmm. to go in for reshoots? And hmm, that's an interesting this was question. Was it someone from question. the studio? I mean, and who I, knows? My, and I my should, feeling is that – sorry, we're oh, stepping sorry. on each other. Go ahead and finish. There's one thing I do want to add here because I feel like I should, for fairness sake – um, I should note that I have no knowledge of whether this was the case, and I should especially note that because I, in fact, used to work for the producer of this movie, Scott Rudin, um, and I feel like I should mention that in passing. Um, uh, but I, I have no idea what caused these changes to be made or if they, or if they were changes at all, if they, these were just the things that David Fincher wanted to do. Who knows? But, um, but yes, they, they see that scene and other Winklevoss scenes and other scenes in the movie seem – a little too much like him pushing for for things to get more intense when they didn't need to get more intense. Well, since we've talked now about the writing and about the direction, maybe we, we end on the note of talking about the performances. I think we both agree that Jesse Eisenberg is pretty towering in this role. I mean, I don't just think he's he's, he's adequate or, or okay. He really showed a new side that I didn't know he had. I've always loved Jesse Eisenberg since, you know, his, um, his work as a child actor in Roger Dodger. And I've had a huge crush on him, I should note, as well for years, as long as we're doing full disclosure. But <laughs> he really shows some, some range in this movie. And I actually am hoping that he gets considered for an Oscar for this role precisely because it's not the kind of role that's, that's uh, 
eagerly, hamily grasping for an Oscar, he really underplays it. Yes, and for that very reason, I think he probably won't be considered. I mean, I think ev- everything about this movie probably will be considered except for him because I think mo- many people will think, oh, it's easy to play an asshole. You just glare at people and say mean things. But yes, I agree that he's fantastic in this. And part of the reason he's fantastic is that I didn't think he had it in him to turn off his natural adorability. Uh, right. He's always been likable, right? I mean, right. I should also note that I always think that he's chosen his roles really well, which is something unusual in a young actor. He hasn't fallen into any um, any bad holes the way kind of Michael Sarah is starting to, although right. I also like Michael Sarah, but, right? But he's starting to fall into this hole of a certain kind of twee role. Or other kind of actors might make the mistake of, you know, taking some kind of a steroided up. I don't see Eisenberg going down that route, but whatever. Suddenly you start going down the action movie route. I think he's been really intelligent in his choices so far, and I really hope this, this gets him to the place that he needs to be where he can just play any role he wants. Yeah. Um, and then his foil for much of the movie, and I mean the other sort of co-lead in this movie is Andrew Garfield is Eduardo Savarin, who I also think is really great and who – and I didn't know that much about Garfield before. I had seen him in a few things. Um, but he's a British actor and he is fantastic in this, playing not only American but a very specific American type. I mean we're led to understand through various uh, things that he says during the movie that he's – uh, he's Hispanic or at least part Hispanic. He's from Florida. He comes from money and he went to prep school. And that's like a very – that's an extremely specific American type to have to play. And he nails it really well, not just the verbal tics but the sort of mix of underdog – and overdog that that kind of character comes with, right? He comes from money, and certainly his life has not been hard, but at the same time, he is used to being on the edges of things because of his ethnic background and because a rich guy, a nouveau riche guy from Florida is never going to exactly fit in in the Northeast um, in the same way that Zuckerberg doesn't fit in uh, in the Northeast exactly the way he wants to. And so I really liked him a lot in this. And he does succeed against my expectations in becoming a legitimate tragic hero um, in the sense that in the in the classical sense of a tragic hero, in the sense that he brought his downfall upon himself through his own blindness. Yeah, Garfield is really terrific to the extent that the movie has a protagonist. In a way, it's almost more Garfield. I mean, Eisenberg is, is sort of the antihero, and I think the emotional glue that holds it together is the Zuckerberg character, but he is so emotionally inert and completely emotionally unavailable that it's it's not that you don't sympathize with him exactly. It's not that you hate him, but he gives you nothing to hold on to, which is, of course, the whole thing about Mark Zuckerberg, right? He gave no one anything to hold on to. Right. Garfield, on the other hand, well, the movie is based on a book that Eduardo Saverin co-wrote in real life, right? had ghostwritten um, that was essentially a hatchet job on Mark Zuckerberg. So in that sense, he is the protagonist. But there's a lot of shifting points of view where you're not exactly sure whose side to take. Right. Well, I mean, Sorkin constructs it pretty carefully in an attempt to uh, tell all sides of the story, which is which is a good way to tell the story, but is also a great way to tell it if you're worried about getting sued or having to defend yourself in the press. You know, So maybe that explains what the Hall of the Mountain King nonsense is doing in there. Maybe that's supposed to be an attempt to get inside the Winklevoss's, you know, paranoid, grandiose vision of themselves. Right. But it was hard for me to read it that way. Right. But he didn't, he didn't have to go so artificial to get inside anyone else's heads. Uh, and the Winklevosses are the most transparent characters on the screen, so it's hard to imagine why he would need to add that much to get us into their brains. Right. The last performance I wanted to quickly note, what did you think of Justin Timberlake as Sean Parker, as the uh, the Napster um, mogul? I thought Justin Timberlake was very believable as a wealthy asshole. 
<laughs> yeah, he was pretty great, I have to say. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I've seen him in a, uh, a non-singing role before where I found him so, so believable. Uh, he was, I mean, that opening scene of him in the, like, the Stanford co-ed uh, dorm room in the morning, who she slept with him, and it slowly dawns on her who she slept with, was a little bit silly, not only because in that era – if someone slept with someone who said they found a Napster, the first thing they would say is, you're Sean Fanning, because that was the the co-founder of Napster whom everyone had heard of at that point. But still, um, I did like Justin Timberlake a lot. I liked him as – the character serves basically as like, a, as like a temptress. I mean he would – in another movie that cared about women, that part would be a woman who was – tempting Mark Zuckerberg towards the dark side of fame because this movie doesn't give a shit about women at all. He's literally almost filmed as the devil. There's that yeah. great scene where they're in a nightclub together with really, really loud, throbbing music. So loud. This is a nice detail in the sound mix. So loud that you can barely hear the dialogue so yes. that you and yourself feel like you're in a noisy club. And the light keeps changing. There's, there's these um, glaring, you know, neon colors keep changing on Justin Timberlake's face as he's trying to tempt Zuckerberg into this <laughs> world of, you know, the, the, the L.A. world of living the high life. And uh, that, scene was, that scene was great, really beautifully lit and great sound, I thought. Right. So as long as we're spoiling, let's talk about the last image of the movie, which I think might kind of lead us to, to touch on what it is trying to say, what kind of message it's trying to leave us with. So in the, the last scene of the movie, we see Zuckerberg, Jesse Eisenberg, sitting uh, alone in the conference room where these depositions have been going on, where essentially the uh, the courtroom part of the movie has been happening, but instead of a courtroom, it's a you know a private mediation, and um, everybody's left, everybody's gone home for the night. He's sitting alone with his computer on Facebook on his own Facebook page, and uh, having been advised by his lawyers to just settle these two lawsuits out of court because, as Rashida Jones puts it to him, this is going to be a parking ticket in the grand scheme of things, right? Of the billions that he's going to he's going to make. So he's searching for this girl, um, played by Rooney Mara in the movie, who dumped him in the very first scene, and who's never forgiven him for the for the subsequent um, indignities that he he blogged about her, and. Uh, and he tries to friend her. He goes to her page, um, requests her as a friend. And then the last image of the movie, right before the title credits run, is him just sitting at the conference table, refreshing, refreshing, refreshing his Facebook page, waiting for her response, which, of course, we know is never going to come. She's going to ignore his friend request, right? Right. So, so th- I think this is a great ending to the movie, but it is trying to make something maybe more of the movie than you think that it's able to be. What, where do you finally come down on the question, is this just the story of an interesting corporate squabble at the heart of Facebook and of an interesting character, Mark Zuckerberg, or is it saying something larger about connectivity, about social media? Uh, I, I don't see it as saying a lot more about connectivity in the way we live now, only because because it doesn't it didn't tell me anything I don't already know about the way I use social media. It told me things I don't already know about the building of a company and about the way that uh, friends can shit all over each other uh, because they're not really the friends that they thought they were. Um, and those are sort of universal themes for a, a movie to take on. But as far as sort of a grand statement about the effect that uh, the revolution has had on our lives – I didn't see that. And and one of the reasons is because I don't think that, honestly, that Aaron Sorkin and David Fincher care about that. I mean, they both live in worlds in which they're not touched by social media in the way that 99.9% of the rest of us are. You know, Sorkin joined Facebook for the first time because he was writing this movie. And, you know, it's not like Fincher tweets or something like that. And so I, I didn't get the impression that they were setting out to make a grand statement about that part of the story. And Sorkin has even sort of gone on record as saying, you know, you could make this exact same 
movie about someone inventing a great chair or, you know, inventing the coffee machine. Um, and I think that that's true. Well, but it wouldn't have that same ending, right? I mean, the person wouldn't be sitting there in the chair trying to connect through the chair to the people who broke their heart and forced them to make the chair. I think that the end has a, some kind of a self-reflexivity that is trying to say a little bit more. And, and I thought that I actually said it effectively, although as, as maybe happens with, you know, good works of art, I'm, it's trying to say so many things that I'm not quite sure I could restate them here. Right. Yes, that's definitely true. To me, the ending played more as being specifically about the screenplay's idea of Mark Zuckerberg, hammering that nail in more than it did, more than it tried to make a grand statement. But I can certainly see that by very virtue of the way that he connects there and the way that people connect in this movie, there are things to be said. But I don't know that I saw it trying hard to make those statements. Yeah, me too. And and I would definitely send people to see the movie and, and talk about it. All right, Dan, well, thanks a lot for coming in to talk to me about The Social Network. My pleasure, friend. Our producer today is Paul Ruest. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.